Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Hadas Kasorla. Hi, Hadas. Hi, thanks for having me. Hadas has a lot of letters after her name, such as JD, MBA, CISSP, CIPT, and so on. But the three letters she cares the most about are YES. She helps organizations build strong, actionable, and implementable security programs by getting buy-in from the boardroom to the basement. She's currently the head of IT security at Simple Finance and a virtual CISO for scale-up companies through Scale Security Group. So Hadas, why don't we get started? How did you get started with security? It's a really long answer. So when I was seven, I wanted to be either an actress or an attorney. And I decided to follow the path of acting. So I graduated high school, went to Niagara University for theater, and dropped out after about a semester and a half because I was not really enjoying school. So I joined the Army, and I was there for three years doing sysadmin work, uh, learned to code. Then after the Army, I went into IT. I did project management, business analysis, systems admin, the whole nine yards. It was in the 90s, so everybody was transitioning from pen and paper to computers, and I was in the midst of all of that, helping them do that. But I still had this dream of being an attorney. So I went back to school and I got my associate's degree, my bachelor's degree. I wasn't quite ready for law school, so I went and got my master's degree. Then I was ready for law school and I went and got my law degree. And I practiced law for about two years and hated every living second of it. So I decided to go back to being in IT. And the culmination of all of my background of doing IT and program management and understanding engineering, but also having this legal background it was just a drop-in fit. I started working at a startup company that was my first day there. The CIO said, so I see you have a law degree. Can you help us with these IRS requirements we have? And I said, sure, because what are you going to say on your first day? And it ended up being building a NIST 800-53 compliant security program in four months. So it was amazing. It was wonderful. And it was just, even though it was a very circuitous path to getting to where I wanted to go, it was perfect. It was exactly the background I needed to get into security. So you might be the first person I know who wanted to pursue acting and went into security. But I do know a few people who have law degrees and were lawyers first and then decided to go to security. And one of the most interesting conversations that I have with them is they, for some reason, love looking at all the details in contracts, statements of work, master services agreements, and so on and so forth. It's true. You get into the weeds. Do you do that much? Yeah. No matter how much you hate practicing law, you still love knowing about it. <laughs> I comb through the contracts with my vendors. I make sure that we have proper security contract language. It's a tick that never goes away. I also have a, a bit of a, I call it a disease in that I've never met a document that I couldn't edit. So <laughs> I tell all of my employees and all my coworkers in advance, this isn't meant as an insult to you. It's definitely a problem that I have, but I will find a 
period that you accidentally italicized and fix it. I can't help myself. You may be the first person who's more picky about those things than I am. I have heard stories from team members that have worked for me, you know, people that, are, that I've hired and during their training phase and whatnot in security, you know, we do like mock reports and things of that nature. And I found out much later in my career that people were scared to submit their mock reports reports to me because they've heard horror stories of others in the past that have done it and, <laughs> and all and it comes back red and they don't they don't know why and it's not because I'm I'm criticizing them it's just you know I am I'm particular about certain little details that being said I've never looked for an italicized period so you may have got me on that one I mean I may be exaggerating the truth but only by a very very small <laughs> smidge <laughs> All right, italicized semicolon. That shouldn't have been italicized. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about your transition then. Obviously, law and security are very different fields. How did you make that transition? And maybe what were some challenges that you had to go through to make that transition? I don't know that they're very different fields. I, obviously, the practice of them, how they come out in the end is very different. But law is integral in everything we do. We are a very law-bound nation and world anymore, honestly. One of the things that I look in the rearview mirror, hindsight's, I, I like to say hindsight's 40-20, because your vision's even better than 20-20 when you're looking back. If I had to do it over again, I probably wouldn't have gotten the MBA because I learned more about business by learning about law. And it helps with contracts, which is how business runs. It helps with everything you do. Well, for security, it's also very useful because you do have compliance and regulatory requirements, potentially. You do have a lot of contracting issues that you need to resolve, especially if you're not accepting risk, but you're also not dealing with risk when you're transitioning it to somebody else to own. There's a lot of legal requirements that happen with that, that you need to meet in order for that to be done properly. So yeah, the practice of them is definitely different, but having the legal background is super helpful in being a successful security leader. I would say that my biggest setbacks from my background to what my career is now is that people often think that they wish that I were more technical than I am. And while I do have an engineering background and have done some of that, it's definitely not my main focus in my career growth. But I think when people look at security leaders, they don't value necessarily the right things. And I don't want to besmirch anybody's thought process on this, but if you're looking for a leader what you want is good leadership skills, good understanding of strategy, good understanding of implementation and getting things over the line and not necessarily does this plug into that and can you do that specifically? Yeah, I tend to agree there. I think I'm not generalizing by any means. You know, everyone has different qualities they bring to the table. But sometimes I think just the the cultural expectation that a security leader has to be very technical and hands-on sometimes actually backfires because someone who is an engineer by nature or more technical and tactical by nature, they tend to struggle with building strategy or thinking of things at a much more larger and broader scale in of having a narrow focus. And that's just based on their, their upbringing and their experience and what they've done. You know, when you're an engineer, you're focusing on solving specific issues and specific problems. Whereas a leader, you have to have vision and be able to think of things more holistically versus focusing on one issue at a time. So I think that's something maybe the security industry needs to evolve the thought process on that a little bit. If you're looking I for a leader, <laughs> truly look for the leadership aspects of it. Having some basics of engineering engineering and technical background are key. 
important, right. which, you know, you said you started with an engineering background and you did some schooling and coding and, you know, you know, IT work and you're right. early on in your career, which I'm assuming helps you would love to understand how that, you know, helps you today. But obviously, ultimately, it's the leadership characteristics that drive in someone being a successful leader. I totally agree. And uh, I am generalizing, but I will say that I also find oftentimes with security leadership or actually any kind of information technology leadership that came from an engineering background, engineers, in my mind, are like artists. They all have their own vision of how things get solved. And it is an art. There is an art to it. And I've never been at a job where an engineer replaced a former engineer that the new engineer hadn't said. Oh, whoever did this last thing, what were they even thinking? So when you have an engineer in the leadership role and they haven't transitioned out of that engineering mindset or the engineering hat, you can have a lot of clashes or they can have a lot of clashes with their employees because the employees are doing the art the way they would do it as opposed to the way their leader engineer would do. And I've seen that backfire actually quite a bit. So. Well, especially if you see that where the teams are small and, you know, when you're replacing engineers and right. people are coming in, it's it's much more obvious from that perspective. And, you know, I understand that you like being in the startup space and you like working in that startup culture. And many startups I talk to and my friends that I see who are in the space, they always seem to see security as something that they can do later. They treat it as, okay, you know what? I don't have the budget. I'm really tight on how I'm spending money or what I'm focusing on. I'll work on security later. I have to work on all these other things first. So kind of the question I have for you is, what are some of the key challenges that you run into on a day-to-day -day basis when you're working in the, in the startup space, but you are actually responsible for security? I think that that mentality is pervasive, uh, especially because security can be quite expensive. But there's, I'm going to win security lingo bingo in a second, but there is a new mindset of shifting left in security and making sure that you are starting to think about security from an earlier point in your development process and the CICD process. I think something that's helped with that is automation, which, you know, automate all of the things. I'm a big proponent of that. But I also understand that any company has to balance the level of security they have with an understanding of their responsibilities uh, to the data, what kind of data they have, what level of data they have. But also they have to make sure that their company is sustainable. You can't spend more than you make <laughs> unless you're a well-funded startup and then go for it. <laughs> but one of the things that I think sets me apart in what I do is having that recognition, having that knowledge. And one of the first questions I ask when I'm working with a startup or a scale-up is what their risk appetite is. What does that look like? How much are they really willing to spend in this space? And what can we do for that dollar amount? A lot of the things you can do is change people's mindset. So engineers who think, oh, we can push security to the end, what they actually need is better education on how they can start bringing security in sooner so that at the end, it doesn't become this huge overhaul or massive attack. <laughs> which is worse. So I think that there's a lot companies can do through automation, through education, that's not as expensive as having an entire SOC. And that's what I'm there to help them with. 
So if we want to kind of have a shift in that mindset and approach, and of course, you have to start somewhere. So when you're talking to an organization or the leadership about what you want to do, what approach you want to take, and where you want to start, how do you prioritize that? And what are some things that you feel are more effective at the beginning and really add a significant value or a significant return on investment? Yeah, I think that one of the best things you can do is start with this two-pronged attack of threat modeling and frameworking. And I know a lot of people in the industry, I've heard lately that a lot of people in the industry don't like frameworks, but I feel that it's a great way to know what the bones of your skeleton look like so that you know where to add the muscles. But I think also threat modeling is super important so that you really understand what data you have, where it is, how it can be attacked, where your vulnerabilities are. And that gives you a focus of where to start. And then I generally like to work from the outside in when building a security program in terms of tooling and from the inside out in terms of people. So I will be working on what I like to call pre-social engineering, all of the internal people to make sure that they are still kind and helpful, but very skeptical of people asking for assistance from outside of the company or even from inside of the company. And then start adding the security minefield on the outside. What I like to say is if you're protecting a castle, when you build the moat, you have a lot more time to start working on the locks on the doors. So as you're building your layered security, your defense in depth, the taking the big chunks, big bites out that are going to be the most effective are the best way to go about it. And I think that threat modeling really helps with that. No, that's definitely, you know, that's one, one advice I give a lot of to a lot of people is if you don't know how to prioritize. A threat model would definitely help you at, at a minimum understand who your adversaries are and, and what they really care about, right? And then right. plan something out. Of course, knowing your assets, knowing what controls you have and all of those things also help. But at a bare minimum, just defining who you're trying to protect against, you know, it goes a long way. And then well, some companies don't even understand what of their data they should be worried about, like which data is valuable and in which ways. So I used to work for Kindercare and something I'd tell them is, yes, we have children's information and that's super important and we respect that and that is what we're protecting absolutely and that was always clear for them. But also, if you're thinking about security in a threat modeling sort of way, if I were a bad actor, how much do I care about children's data? There's, a, there's definitely a minimum amount because they are, let's call it their data is virginal, like it's probably untouched. I can use it for a lot of things potentially, but also... If I'm looking at data in the aggregate because I'm a bad actor, and I don't mean Andy McDowell, I mean like somebody who's a threat, but if I'm looking at data in the aggregate, I might have, if I've done an attack, Kindercare's data, Target's data, Safeway's data, your 24-hour fitness data, and now I know everything your family is doing and what their calendar looks like, and I can now target you specifically. And that kind of thought process of, oh, this isn't just we need to protect children's data. We really need to protect this because this could be this could have bigger ramifications than we're expecting or than we've even thought about. And then to add to that, right, you know, they probably also hold the parents' financial data of those children and access to, you know, social security numbers and home addresses right. and bank account information and, and so on and so forth, emergency contacts and, and whatnot. And you can leverage that if you are an adversary in a in a very very negative way 
And the other thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is when your data gets breached, especially personally identifiable information, and you're younger, and as you said, it's, it's a virginal data, right? You can't change some of your PII. You cannot change your home address just because it got breached. You cannot change your social security number just because it got breached. So the impact of that data breach is actually longer for someone if they're younger and their data gets breached versus someone who's older. And it's so hard to unthread that. It's so hard to figure out, especially if you're not finding out about it for 20 years, that there have been three people using your identity and now you're trying to buy a house and you have to figure out where to even, it's, it, it's complicated. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do want to touch um, on the concept you talked about earlier about pre-social engineering, but I think if I interpret it correctly, it's about building a trusted relationship with the key stakeholders that you're working with and trying to protect and educate them, right? But I like your phrase, the, the pre-social engineering. I'll have to add that to the security lingo bingo chart, but tell me more about that. You know, what do you really have to do to earn trust and then start evangelizing security, but not be overbearing to others? I actually have a blog post on my LinkedIn that I would love to direct people to on this. I know a lot of people really like to fish their employees, and I understand to a point the value of that. But I also think that especially now, phishing emails are so sophisticated and so hard to tell apart and security people who are very skeptical fall for them. And so if you think that, you know, Janice in accounting isn't going to fall for your very clever phishing, you're wrong. And now you're wasting her time because you're sending her to, you know, the corner to go study on phishing. And I just feel like it's a demotivational way to earn trust. Instead, what I like to do is, yes, of course, we have to do the annual security training. And I actually like to do those quarterly instead of annually. So it's bits and chunks throughout the year. I send out information about latest threats or blog about them, depending on how the communication is within the company, so that people can go and read about security. And I definitely try to make sure it's in layman's terms. But the main thing I do is I let people know, A, that I would rather that they, quote unquote, interrupted me and let me know about something they're concerned about than that they were afraid to approach me. And I don't want them to feel like if they do something wrong, they'll be punished. So I've been known to give out $5 Starbucks cards when they find something. I've, you know, I want to reward them communicating with the security department because then they'll continue to communicate with us. And that's the only way we can go about actually securing from a people perspective. Social engineering is, is the highest vector for a compromise within a company. I really do consider it pre-social engineering and have used that phrase internally, not to make it sound rude to people, but to let them know that most of the reasons why social engineering works is because people are nice and they're kind and they want to help. And I don't want my company's values to not include the wanting to help others. I just want to add, but be skeptical. If it sounds strange, it probably is. If it sounds out of the ordinary, question why we're doing it this way. Once people get that into their brain, they have a better lens of when to not click that email or when to not give out that data over the phone. There's a great YouTube video of somebody vishing, voice phishing, and she's got a baby crying in the background and, oh, I'm so sorry, we, we just moved and I'm trying to get everything settled. And the person on the phone is, you can hear their heart just melting for this woman to help her. And she's just stealing information. 
And I also send that out every once in a while to my people just to let them know what they're up against. I love that video. I've seen it. I remember, I think the hacker's name was Jessica and she was at DEF CON or yes. and it was, an, it was a news reporter who said, why don't you go ahead and show me what you do? And the funniest thing was she turns on this background noise of a baby crying and she calls up one of the cell phone providers and she goes, you know, my husband told me to take care of this before we go on vacation tomorrow. And, you know, we just got married and I, uh, he was supposed to add me to the account. Can you please help me out? And I need to, to get this. And oh, and then the baby interrupts or whatever. Right. And she creates this sense of urgency, but also builds this level of empathy with the yeah. customer service rep to the point where the customer service rep is trying to be as helpful as possible and do anything that she wants. And that's how they do it. And then you see these videos, these trainings, or these email phishings in work, and it's never like that. It's always this stale, hey, Joe, uh, do you have your social security number so I can open? Nobody does phishing like that anymore. They hit your empathies. And so you have to you have to put a wall around your empathies a little and just be skeptical. Oh, I really want to help you. However, I really have to get this other information. And the other thing, too, that that's important to highlight here is social engineering is going to be a challenge until companies figure out how to authenticate people who are calling in to them asking for information. There's another video I'll send it to you that I recently saw. And this, this was a CNN reporter who basically sent his information, his name to this hacker and said, tell me, show me what you can do and I'll come meet you in a day or something like that. And this person, she found a picture of him after he installed a new stand-up desk at his house. And he had written about the brand of the desk that he had delivered. So she called up the company that sells that desk and said, hey, I'm so-and-so. I need to order a part for my desk. I wanted to make sure I was ordering the right one. And can you? Can I order it from you? And can you just confirm with me what the model number is so I can figure out on the website? And then she, they were very helpful and like, yeah, of course you should order the right part, buy it from us. And then she's like, can you just ship it to my address? And they're like, yeah, we have this address on file. Is that still accurate? Oh, Jesus. And that's how she got his address, even though he's very careful about not posting stuff on social media. And what, And then she figured out his birthday from people wishing him happy yeah. birthday and, and all that stuff. And it's fascinating. And by the end of it, she was able to go and like start a loan or something in his name with the bank because she had all the information she needed to at least get the process started. That whole thing is fascinating. When I was at DEF CON, like I stayed in the room where they were doing the real-time phishing stuff because it's fascinating. That's how you really understand no matter how good your security is, people can always find a hole. And, and I really think it's because people are so empathetic to each other's plights. And if you get the right person at the right time with the right story, you're going to get in. So I just feel like really having my employees or, or the company employees see those videos and understand that it's not, oh, you were too stupid to figure out this fishing thing. It's really, oh, this person hit your heartstrings and this could happen to anybody. And it's it, the hackers take so much advantage of crisis situations to kind yeah. of make that problem even much more difficult to detect. So this is a personal experience. I get calls from scammers on my phone all the time, right? And, and when I get a call from those, I know it's a scammer. I actually want to get to someone. So I try to get them to answer the phone. The last three times, the three calls I got were all the same. It was they claimed to be from one of the largest banks in the U.S. And they say, oh, we see that you have our credit card. We're offering a promo to reduce the interest rate on your card. And you think of so many people who 
are in debt right now, they're using their credit card. You find someone who's really struggling, they might think that that's a real deal. Then they get on the phone and the guy goes, hey, I need to validate your account. Can you please go get your card and tell me your credit card number because I need to validate you. And there you have it. You have them giving out the number. So when they do that, I, I ask them, like, you're calling me for my account. Don't you know? credit card I have? Like, why do you need my credit card number? Can I, can you validate me some other way? And then they just hang yeah. out right away, right? So it's funny, but it, they, they take these situations in crisis. I've actually blogged about this too in the beginning of the pandemic on how scammers and fishers and hackers and vishers are trying to leverage the pandemic as a way to get to people. I think that's why it really annoys me when I hear people in the industry saying things like people are your weakest link because it's just they're they're not a weak link. They're they're your strongest line of defense and just understanding that the people you want working for your company are people who are caring people, who are empathetic, who you would like to have a cup of coffee with because they are nice people and then to say, "Well, you're our weakest link." It's not my favorite. I'm guilty of using that phrase. I'll I'll admit it, you know. Um, That being said, the context in which I use it is the fact that when people start thinking or going down the path of, oh, I'm implementing all these technologies and automation and tools to protect the company, that's when I start telling them, look, you can implement as much technical controls as you want, but ultimately you still have people. people that, that how you have to secure because all of those controls just go out the gate as soon as someone yeah. loses a laptop and or doesn't lock the laptop and right. get coffee at Starbucks and someone grabs that laptop and walks away, right? It's like, that's where I've used the term the weakest link, not to, you know, marginalize anybody, but, but, but in, that, <laughs> in that context, so I am guilty of using that terminology. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about given your diverse background, especially with law and acting and everything. You're clearly very personable and someone who's very easy to work with. And you treat people with the type of respect and and focus on, on people as being someone who enables you to be successful at what you do. How do you think your background in law, acting, et cetera, has helped you become the person that you are? So to be clear, I don't not do acting anymore. I actually do improv now, which I think specifically helps. It changed me as a human being 10 years ago when I started, 11 years ago when I I'm getting old. <laughs> because it does give you the tools to be more empathetic, honestly. Improv teaches you how to support each other's ideas, how to listen to each other thoroughly and not just to wait for your turn to talk. So I think that improv is great for everybody always, but specifically for my career, what it's done is allowed me to change the stance of security being, this is how we do things to protect the company into more of a conversation of the company telling me, oh, we want to do this thing. And instead of me saying, you can't do that, it's not secure, me saying, okay, let's do it the safest way we know how. Here are some options. It's the yes and of improv, as improvisers would say and recognize. So I think that that's helped me immensely. It's also helped me in communication in general, which being the leader of any group, you really need to know how to communicate. You need to know how to communicate as a CISO. You need to know how to communicate with the C-suite. You need to know how to communicate with the board. You need to know how to communicate with Janice and accounting. (laughs) You need to, because when you bring security into your environment, that doesn't mean you're secure. It means you now have what I like to call security as a service. You have a center of excellence 
excellence that understands how to implement security. But really, again, back to people, they are the ones who are going to bring security into your environment. They just now they need to have that communication with your security department to understand how. So I think improvs helped me immensely. The law part, I think, has just been, like I said, regulatory and understanding compliance and understanding contracting, things like that. It's super useful. Law is a super useful tool for any aspect of business is what I really believe. Now, I'm not saying that people need to go and spend hundreds of thousand dollars on their JD because I don't recommend it. And if you want to be a lawyer, I recommend you look yourself in the mirror and say no and change your mind. But if you're going to advance your career with a degree and you're thinking about an MBA, I would maybe consider having a JD instead. Isn't there a critical thinking aspect of law that that comes into play for security? There definitely is critical thinking in law. There's also, you're bringing this into my mind for the first time, but I think that you have something here, which is that law and law schools teach you that reasonable minds can differ, right? So there's no answer to a question. And the answer to any question right off the bat is it depends. And anybody first in in legalese will know that any lawyer, when you ask them a question, will say, well, it depends. And I think security has that same balance, right? There's not any one true answer for how to implement security. The answer is it depends. Again, what is your data? Where is it? Who do you need to protect? Do you have regulatory requirements? Are you working with government data? Are you working with healthcare data? Are you a business associate or a covered entity? All of these aspects of who your company is as an entity, and then on top of it, what kind of financial capabilities they have for implementation, Those are all the inputs to really understand what the answer is on top of their risk appetite. There's so many, there's so many avenues going in. So the answer is it depends. And I think law does help you learn how to think on multiple sides of an issue instead of just, oh, I know what the answer is. It's going to be this. No, that's fair. And that makes a lot of sense too. So let's shift gears a little bit since you talked about improv. My favorite improv celebrity, I guess, is uh, is Ryan Stiles and Wayne Brady from Whose Line Is It Anyway? I, I've watched that show over and over again. I, anytime I can just put on an episode and be happy. Who's your favorite improv artist? So I grew up watching Whose Line Is It Anyway, but the British version and Josie Lawrence. I just loved her because she's also a singer and I'm also a singer. Everything she did was gold. And I still remember scenes that from that show that had her in it with Mike McShane. The two of them were like, oh, gold. Anyway, I could geek out about improvising. I love all improvisers. As an improviser, the fact that anybody is willing to get up on stage in front of people to make stuff up on the spot, it's pretty extraordinary. And no matter their level, just the fact that as an adult, you're willing to learn to play again because, you know, schools beat it out of you. You're not allowed to have fun anymore. Now you sit in a desk, blah, blah, blah. But I just, I love the art. I love the doing of it. I love the teaching of it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think the, the pair of Ryan and Colin on the US one with Drew Carey, yeah. that pair is, is hard to beat. They come up with some of the funniest stuff. And of course, Wayne is from improvising songs. He's like he's really, yeah. really good at singing stuff and just coming up with stuff that's amazing. Any genre that he, they pick, he just blows it out of the water. And you can really tell that Ryan and Colin have worked together a lot. They definitely have the kaboom kachunk of their art down with each other. They know where their gears fit in together. It's beautiful to see. 
I have a, a show that I do in Portland, which I'm really sad that, you know, everything's closed right now because we run this show in January and it's with Funhouse Lounge and it's USS Improvise and it's Star Trek, The Next Generation, the improvised musical. And we know who, we know which characters we're playing that night. So, you know, I might be Worf or I might be Deanna Troy, but we get the suggestions from the audience and we make up a bottle episode of Star Trek, the musical. And it's nerdy and so fun and so funny. And I miss it terribly. And the first thing I want to do when we're allowed to do things is get up on stage in front of people and make an ass of myself. All right, I'll have to check that out. I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so... so You'll we'll love to, it! We'll have, to, we'll have to check that out. And then in terms of British comedy, I think in general, I love the British humor. It's it's more nuanced, I think. And, you know, I've seen every episode of the US office at least four times now. So I've finished the whole season four times over. And I've seen the... But, the, but the British one is so much better from my perspective. I absolutely love it. Just the tension you feel in the comedy in the British one, it's hard to beat. I totally agree with you. I will say though, I've gotten to a place in my life, which is weird, where sitting in discomfort is too uncomfortable for me, even as a viewer. So... And the British do it so beautifully and for so much longer that sometimes I think anymore in my life, I can't watch it. I, I also enjoy the British office more, but I don't know if I'd be able to rewatch it right now because sitting in that awkward space is just like, ooh. The episode where he's a motivational speaker, that so episode still, like it's like ingrained in my head. I love that episode. Well, so, so far, we've talked about your improv skills and, and how you're involved there, your acting, your singing, your former life as a, as a legal professional. And then that's not all that you do. You do a lot more. You are a serial hobbyist. I am. What can you share with us about all the great things that you do? I have been knitting for 40 years, not the same piece, just in general. I've been knitting for, uh, oh God, did I say 40? 35 years. I'm, it's still a lot. I do art. So I've taken up oil painting and I draw. I There's an aerial uh, circus class in Portland that I was going to before we all shut down. Although I heard recently that they're reopened. So I'm very excited about that. I do and coach HIT or, you know, it used to be CrossFit, but we're just not affiliated with them. But like the uh, high intensity interval training, I run, I read a lot. In fact, last year I set a goal for 100 books and I read 120. So this year I set a goal for 100 books and we'll see what happens. I do puzzles. I do crossword puzzles. I am a serial hobbyist. I've been thinking about taking up pottery lately. <laughs> And I was also thinking about going back to school to go to med school. So I, I, I'm, I might have a problem. <laughs> I'm just interested in everything. It's good to have so many interests. It just makes it challenging because there's only so much time in a day. It's true. There's also this really excellent book, and it's called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And it's David Epstein. 
And it's amazing. And it talks about generalizing and learning random things and going from one career path to another career path can actually in the long run make you more successful at seeing overarching pictures because you're not so focused on, I know how to do surgery on the heart. You're more, instead of a spotlight, you have this bigger, the room is now lit and you can see everything going on in it. That's one of the books I read last year. And it really, really changed my world and how I thought about the fact that I went through such a circuitous path to get to where I am. I always tell people that they should walk through open doors. <laughs> you never know what's on the other side. And I think that this book is a really good example of why. It's the new Renaissance, right? It's the new Renaissance man. I'm a Renaissance man. I always wanted to be a Renaissance man. <laughs> no, it's it's fascinating. And, and, you know, it's so nice to meet someone that has so much diverse experience and interests and things that you like to do. My parents growing up always tried to instill that I be a more well-rounded person instead of being really, really, really good at one thing only. So they would, you know, make sure I had a piano to learn how to play piano. And then later I, you know, I got to play different sports and I, I went from one sport to the other. It was like table tennis when I was seven years old to badminton when I was 10 to actual tennis and cricket after I was a teenager. You uh, like hitting things with that. And then now it's golf, <laughs> right? But I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I, I do like hitting things. It's, 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 and then I did <laughs> boxing for a while. And then, you know, I've come back to do some music stuff just to practice more piano and guitar. And I over the quarantine time, you know, I was uh, working on electric guitars and fixing them up for fun. I was buying like used guitars off of Facebook Marketplace. That's and, so and so cool. On and so, so, you know. It's super fun to be a dabbler. And, oh, I also cook. I can't believe I, I forgot to mention that. So I decided this year to up-level my cooking and I bought The Joy of Cooking and I chose 50 recipes from it that I'm going to cook throughout the year. And I've already hit six of them. And I will tell you what, A, my cooking is getting better, but B, you need to have time to cook one of these recipes. One of them takes six hours. It's insane, but it's also lovely. I never consider myself a cook, but we did a cooking class with our clients recently where we actually had someone who zoomed in from Italy to teach us how to make ravioli and tiramisu. And I'll be, I'll be honest, I was impressed with my skills on the Zoom call trying to trying to cook something. Whatever I made, it actually turned out really good. I want to be on the next one of those. We'll get you, we'll get you on. But I, I mean, I don't know if I could replicate it again, but with the guidance, I, I did pretty well. It, it turned out to be really That's good. Awesome. So, yeah, absolutely. That is awesome. Well, Hadas, thank you so much. And I'm a scuba diver. There's oh, more. <laughs> that was that was on my list. That was that was on my list of things to ask you about, actually. But no, Hadas, we'll have to reconvene and and continue this conversation. Uh, but thank you so much for your thank time. You. I really appreciate it. And hopefully, you know, once this whole pandemic thing is over, we get to actually meet in person and and continue this conversation. I would love that. I really enjoy a glass of wine now and again. So maybe we can find a nice place to sit outside or inside once this is over and have a sip of wine. Absolutely. Well, thank right. you. Talk soon. Take thank care. you. Bye. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.